Hey everyone, and welcome to the first episode of my new podcast, Conscious Care, Delving into the Ethics Behind Medicine. My name is Sindhu Nagarakanti, and I am joined today by my sister, Roshni Nagarakanti. Roshni, say hi. Hey everyone. So in this podcast, we are going to explore controversial bioethical issues and basically discuss the varying perspectives regarding the issue. So the point of the podcast is not to really convince you one way or another, but rather spark a conversation about these present day issues that are faced every day. So the topic that we will be discussing today is informed consent. Even though it seems like a very straightforward issue, informed consent is a topic that many people fail to grasp as it has a case-by-case application. Nowadays, with technology and the fast spread of information, there are informed consent dilemmas coming up all the time. Before we get too deep into this topic, I think we should start at the beginning. Informed consent is, to summarize, the idea that a patient should have sufficient information about the treatments they are being given before making a medical decision. That's right. So a patient has informed consent if they are able to make a decision, they were given an explanation of the medical intervention before the decision, they understand the medical intervention, and they understand that they have a choice. This means that patients with altered mental status or patient or a patient who has medical proxies cannot have informed consent as they are not able to understand the medical intervention and they're not able to understand that they have a choice. So the third point you said, I believe, is part of informed consent that not a lot of people understand. If the patient simply understands what the procedure is, that's not providing informed consent. The patient needs to understand the risks, the benefits, all of the options, and everything that could arise from the treatment. I agree. I feel like a lot of people brush over that part and just think that because they explain the procedure, the patient is informed. But the patient really has to understand all of the choices that they have and all of the risks and the benefits that come from the procedure in order to make a truly informed decision about their treatment. Aren't there also ethical issues regarding the first part of the definition? If the patient is not able to make a decision, then are they really informed? So this is basically what I touched on a little bit earlier, but in these situations, they would have a surrogate or a medical proxy that would make a decision for the patient who receives these interventions. This proxy would be chosen by the person prior to their altered mental status, but the issues for this arise when the person didn't choose a medical proxy beforehand and the family that they do have does not is not able to con- like come to one decision. Another thing that could happen is that if there's no family for the patient, then people wonder like who makes that decision if they didn't pick a medical proxy beforehand. Some people argue that it should be the doctors or a team of bioethicists, but you have to think about what the patient actually wants and do it. Does a team of doctors and bioethicists know what the patient's wishes were? Or do, are they simply just going to regard it from an ethical or a medical perspective? Well, there's clearly not one right answer to this complicated issue, but I think that having a combination of both family and a team of experts could make the issue a little less daunting. Um, I, I agree with that, but I think the most important thing, because as I said before, like the family is not always able to be there, and um, just having the doctors is... It doesn't regard the patient and what they want. So I think having an open line of communication and a sense of transparency between the doctors that are treating the patient and the family of the patient and the patient themselves is really, really important. And 
even in cases when the patient doesn't have family, a medical proxy would be assigned to them, um, even if they didn't choose them. And I think that the doctor communicating and um, the family communicating with the medical proxy is really, really important. And um, also taking into account the patient's history, like their medical history, even when they don't have family, because you can see decisions that they've made in the past. Um, and that should be taken into account when making decisions on behalf of the patient. But um, I think this issue, again, has come up more because of technology. And even though it's more prevalent now, there have been cases of informed consent not being respected throughout history. Yeah, I agree. The one that I heard of, probably the most famous one, is the Tuskegee syphilis study. Yeah, the Tuskegee one is definitely the most famous one. For people that don't know about it, the Tuskegee study happened in the 1930s to 1970s. They took black men, some with and some without syphilis, and without informed consent, they were tested on and treated for syphilis. In return, they received free meals and medical exams. They didn't even call it syphilis to these um to the patients back then. They told they were told that they were being treated for bad blood. So not only did they not tell them the treatments that were being performed on them, they didn't even tell them the name of the disease that they had. So it really adds on to the fact that they had no information about what they were going through. And they were being treated for syphilis, but instead they like drew their blood and they just did experiments and testing on them instead of treating them. And you said that the Tuskegee study happened in the 1930s to the 1970s. I know that in the 1940s, penicillin was effectively shown to treat syphilis and it was widely available because it was such a um, huge and like ramp rampant disease of the time. And the participants in this study were not offered the option to be treated with penicillin or any options really. They honestly were just told that they were being treated and didn't really have any explanation regarding it. Yeah, that's just so unfair because these studies were conducted 30 years past when penicillin was proven to be a good treatment. I think it just goes mm-hmm. to show how these experiments were portrayed to be an act of kindness and useful research, but they truly were just a cover for racism. Yeah, I completely agree. I know that the families of the participants and even the participants themselves were continuing to receive medical benefits and even are continuing to receive medical benefits because of what they were put through but does that really make up for what they experienced it really doesn't they kept these men from rightful treatment just so they could study the long-term implications of the deadly disease that's something that you can't really um forgive another for that's a really good point um i know that tuskegee is a really common one that people discuss but um another one that i was just reading about was um one that i like had never heard of before it was um a case in Guatemala in the 1940s where American researchers conducted unethical medical experiments on Guatemalan citizens. So basically they took prisoners in Guatemala and um, people with mental illnesses in Guatemala who could not provide informed consent and basically conducted experiments where they infected them with sexually transmitted diseases without their consent. That's a clear breach of power. What exactly happened with that? Basically what happened was that American researchers went in and were given permission from U.S. public health services and even had cooperation from Guatemalan authorities. And they conducted experiments in which they infected vulnerable populations with STDs. And they didn't inform the subjects about the experiments that were being conducted or 
how it would affect them or any risks that they would face. And they were really given no information throughout the like process of their treatment or the experiments that were being conducted on them. And um, were just told that they would come in and help. And they had really no way to find out more information about what was being done either. This was before the principles of biomedical ethics, right? Yes, um, but it definitely doesn't make it any more ethical. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. For anyone that doesn't know what the principle of biomedical ethics were, they're a book that was published in the 1970s. The basic idea is that in medicine, four practices must be followed by researchers and doctors. These practices are autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. So autonomy is informed consent, right? Yeah, that's right. Do you want to explain the rest of them? Sure. Beneficence is the idea that a doctor or a researcher has to do good. Non-maleficence is the idea of doing no wrong. And justice is the idea of always doing what's fair and what's right. Even though these kind of cover a lot of bases, they aren't very, very specific. And there are times when these four principles disagree with one another where you'd have to respect one principle more than another and um I think we should do another podcast episode about that because there are so many examples of when people um when these like principles disagree with one another and then um physicians and researchers don't have it don't know what to do and what is the most ethical option Yeah, I agree. I feel like that's such an important and it's a really like serious and huge topic to cover. So I think it deserves its own episode. Yeah. But anyway, going back to what you said, that's all correct. Um, So these principles were created in response to ethical issues like the breach of human rights in Guatemala or Tuskegee. Um, But even with things like this, there's a lack of informed consent even in modern day, even when not considering issues where the patient can't make decisions for themselves. Um, Another case I was looking at was the unauthorized relations of immigrant women also in the United States. It seems like these cases are happening right under our noses, but I haven't heard this being discussed enough. Yeah, I agree. Um, This one actually happened, the one I was just about to mention, actually happened in 2020, which was only three years ago. So what happened? Um, Similar to what happened in Guatemala, Immigrant women in detention centers in the United States were subjected to unauthorized hysterectomies. They were not fully informed of what the procedure would be or how it would affect them, but they were still given the treatment. This, on top of highlighting the lack of informed consent and how people are not really addressing the issue, also kind of similar to Tuskegee, highlights how it's unfairly affecting people of color and people who are marginalized in the United States. Again, similar to the Guatemala case. I think this also brings up the issue of how patients feel afraid to bring up kinds of questions like I don't understand to doctors because they feel like the doctors have more authority than them and are in a higher position. I feel like that is a little bit alienating for the patients as they don't feel comfortable expressing their concerns to the doctors that are treating them. Yeah, I agree. And again, going back to the communication thing, I feel like if there isn't a line of open communication between the doctors and the patients, there will never be truly informed consent because the patient will always have those fears of coming to the doctor with their concerned, with their concerns. Um, going back to the case, um, 
just giving you a little bit more background on it, but it was a complaint that was filed in Georgia, and it, there was a claim that there was a pattern of neglect and a lack of informed consent. Um, as I said before, they were undergoing unnecessary hysterectomies and were not given the proper justification or information about these procedures. In some cases, these procedures that were not needed even led to long-term health issues that the patient was not informed of before the procedure. Um, and it also feels like a direct attack because these women that were operated on had a limited proficiency in English and could not access as much information, which made it hard for them to fully understand what the surgery actually was and what they were agreeing to. I know um, with regards to informed consent, um, when doctors are being trained about informed consent, they are told to explain it to their patient as if they were talking to an eighth grader. But in some cases, um, like this one where there is a language barrier, talking to the patient as if they were talking to an eighth grader wouldn't actually provide the patient with the needed amount of information to properly be, to properly have informed consent. I know they're trying to solve like problems with language barriers right now with language concordant care groups and even just like having translators be involved in the process. What is a language concordant case group? Um, it's kind of where there's just like a group of people who also speak the same language and are going through the same treatment and they all like kind of get together and they kind of speak about it together so they all like understand what they're going through and they can see how people who have gone through the treatment have like like their um, issues with it or like if there were no issues, how it went for them. That's That's a really, really cool thing that they're implementing it. Has it is it like something that's new or is it something that's been around for a while? It's something that's new. They're still like doing a lot of research on it. I know they've been trying it out with groups and I've seen that there are positive results from it. So I think it's gonna be more implemented into healthcare. That's awesome. That's really, really cool. And I think that's something that could be really, really useful. Um, because there are so many languages in America. Um that's that's really awesome. Yeah. And going back to what you said before this, um, I think it's scary that the dilemma wasn't even being talked about. I think not only, as you were saying, it brings up issues within bioethics, but it also brings up issues in our immigration system, healthcare, and most importantly, communication. I truly do feel for these women because they were stripped of their rights and their dignity, and they were forced into unnecessary procedures. Yeah, I mean, the article that I was reading was saying that even when it was investigated further, it was very, very evident that this wasn't an incident that just happened one time. It was something that happened to many women many times. And it also reflects how there are so many holes and failures within our healthcare system. Even within like a, a detention center or a prison system, there are so many failures and problems because things are just overlooked because we consider somebody a criminal. And I think that brings up the issue of how people view criminals as beneath them or not deserving of care because they made a mistake or committed a crime in the past. Um, recently, I did a paper on women's health care within the prison system, and there is a lot of lack of funding and access to products and resources and lack, uh, lack of access to emergency care. That is really, really frightening and should not be an issue. I mean, these women don't have access to doctors and have a lack of transportation to go get access to doctors and have a lack of access to resources and things like that. And um, 
access to health care and safety should be a basic right to people who are incarcerated. And they shouldn't have to worry about the fact that they could be taken advantage of. So this is something that definitely needs to be discussed more. I mean, going back to the case in Guatemala, the American researchers chose prisoners and people who cannot make decisions for themselves as their subjects. Mm -hmm. This means that prisoners have access to as much information as people who are unable to make decisions for themselves. That's a scary thought, as they should be able to make decisions for themselves as they are humans and they are mostly of sound mind. Yeah, I mean, they took advantage of people who could not make sound decisions for themselves along with prisoners, and I guess they they kind of did equate them to each other. I think this also brings up a judgment within the healthcare system as people with altered mental status are sometimes left to fend for themselves. Sometimes even people without altered mental status are left to fend for themselves and have to find out information about their treatments by themselves. This happens in and sometimes even outside of the prison system. I think there is a lack of access to proper information around the United States and even in the world. People shouldn't have to resort to their own research to know about the procedures and treatments that are being performed on them. That's a really good point, but I wonder, even when having an open line of communication with your physician and with your healthcare professionals, if that could even take away from your informed consent. What do you mean? I think it's a very fine line to walk on between providing all the information and steering your patient towards one procedure or another. Even when you are trying to rid yourself of all the biases, it's impossible to fully make yourself unbiased when providing information. That's a really, really good point. Um, But even though it's impossible to free yourself from bias, I think that through lots of practice, there is a way where you can make yourself and make the way that you provide information be mostly unbiased and informative. I think in order to do that, there needs to be more training. There needs to be more training when it comes to all of these ethical issues, as without bioethical training and a clear education on all of the varying perspectives and things that have happened in the past, I don't think healthcare providers are fully informed on how to address all of these issues that may arise within their duration of care. I agree that there is a lack of bioethical education within medical schools and even undergrads. But I don't think that doctors are ill-equipped to provide informed consent to their patients because it is so stressed in medical schools and throughout your training. I do think that it should be something that is routinely brushed up on and made sure that doctors are actually providing the information to their patients, though. I've never been to medical school, obviously, so I don't know how this is taught, but I do think it should be monitored a lot more closely as if things are like this are happening in the United States and people are coming forward with long-term health problems, there should be more precautions in place so there isn't a breach of informed consent. I completely agree. I think another thing to maybe consider is that making sure the right professional is talking to you about your care. What do you mean by that? So, um, for example, if you're going into surgery, sometimes the information about the surgery and its risks is provided to you by a nurse or an anesthesiologist instead of the surgeon. Oh, I understand. But isn't an anesthesiologist also a doctor? So wouldn't they have the same information about the surgery? They are a doctor, but they wouldn't have all of the same needed information as the surgeon would have because they're less qualified to talk about the procedure and they would mostly talk about it from an anesthesiologist's perspective. So they didn't... they wouldn't know everything that a surgeon would know and everything that you would need to know to make an informed decision about the treatment. 
That actually makes a lot of sense. Honestly, I did not think about this as much as I probably should have been thinking about this, as informed consent was never really something that was on my mind. But now that we talked about it and I understand it a lot better, I think this is something that I'll be making sure that people are aware of and something I will discuss with my healthcare professionals in the future. I know, there is so much more to touch on with regards to informed consent, like IRBs and language barriers, but I think we did a good job of covering the basics. I did learn a lot from this episode, and I think and I hope that you guys did too. Maybe we might make another episode about informed consent, but that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Come back next week for another discussion on bioethics. Bye, guys.